This is the Next Generation Design Podcast by Siemens Digital Industries Software, where engineering meets tomorrow. I'm your host, Jennifer Piper, and in this episode, I take you on an automotive deep dive into the trends in designing the future of the world's transportation. If you grew up watching the cartoon, The Jetsons, flying cars, minimal traffic, and drones doesn't seem so far away. And it's not just because Tesla are talking about it. How close are we to the future? What will vehicles look like? Let's take a drive today with Tom Spangler, who explores the trends in the current automotive design space. I had about 15 years of experience in the automotive industry before I joined Siemens, which was about 12 years ago now. I worked at the OEM and supplier level as a designer in data management. I was coordinating some outsourcing efforts for a while. So, you know, worked with a variety of different software, was involved all the way from, you know, starting off as a, as a detailer co-op up to a management position uh, later on in my career. Since I've been with Siemens, I've been uh, in the NX marketing group, worked on a variety of different uh, campaigns and product launches. So I've been able to stay current with the industry, with both the, uh, the CAD industry and the automotive industry. With the Paris Climate Agreement calling for at least a 90% reduction in carbon emissions in transportation by 2050, electrification is a hot topic, especially around discussions on future vehicles. Well, it shouldn't be a surprise to anybody that we're seeing electrification happening more and more in the automotive industry. You know, you're seeing uh, companies like Tesla that have uh, made some great strides, but also Ford just released uh, the uh, Mustang e-tron, or they introduced it, they're going to release it later. So we're seeing more and more of the uh, kind of the legacy mainstream car makers moving into uh, electric as well. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Some of them are regulatory. One of our customers is uh, Red Bull Racing, the Formula One team. And I think we, uh, we can all appreciate how quickly things can change at the very top level of auto racing. And, and they're a longtime customer of ours. The, one of the things that they really like, they're able to uh, go from an initial design of a new component to wind tunnel testing in less than 10 days using our software. Wow, that's fantastic. So when you talk about this area of electrification, how far out do you see some of these topics, you know, actually coming to fruition? Are some of these available today or are we looking like one to two to five years out? Some of it is out there today. Tesla is really um, kind of pushing the envelope on some of these technologies, but more and more of the legacy car companies are, are moving into it because they see that it's the future. I think that within five years, it'll, it'll definitely be a lot more common than it is. Some of it is, is still cost right now, is, is really the restriction. I think the technology is really improving. Porsche just came out with the, uh, the Taycan, which is their first uh, electric vehicle, and it's a, a high-performance vehicle that uh, fully lives up to the Porsche reputation, and it's a full EV. And uh, 10 years ago, I don't think anybody would have seen that coming, so I think things are moving pretty quickly. There are already several cities that are banning diesel engines by 2025, like Paris and Madrid and Athens, Mexico City. So we're definitely seeing some uh, some regulatory pressure to uh, move away from internal combustion engines. But also, there's efficiency gains. Electric drivetrains can achieve double the efficiency of, of internal combustion drivetrains. So there's there's definitely a benefit to the customer as well. And also, we're seeing a move toward autonomous vehicles as well. And this is another area where Tesla is uh, um, doing well with it and also uh, Cadillac with Super Cruise. It's an area where 
there's still a lot of work to be done, but there is uh, quite a bit of testing happening. Right now, there are 47 cities around the world where autonomous vehicles are being tested. Waymo is doing 25,000 miles per day of testing, and that was as of about a year and a half ago. I can only assume that they're they're coming up from there. So the only way these, these systems are going to get better is with a lot of testing and a lot of miles. So they're rapidly improving and are, are going to reach the point where it's going to be a pretty viable technology here sooner than later. The challenge with that is it's going to require a lot more electronics. It's going to need sensors and cameras and wiring and things like that that are going to introduce some some uh, design compromises to, uh, to cars. We're also seeing uh, connectivity becoming more and more important. So this has already started with any modern car. They have uh, satellite navigation. They're you know, connected to apps and things like that, remote start. They can do testing to determine you know, how, how long it's been since an oil change, things like that. But where we're also seeing things like the voluntary uh, driver tracking that some auto insurance companies are using in order to get b better definition of uh, that particular customer to set their rates. So all this is, is connected stuff. It's going to be absolutely necessary to have a very connected car when you're talking about autonomous vehicles because they need to be able to communicate with the infrastructure and see what's happening around them for things like weather conditions and traffic and what's going on with all of that to make things as safe as they possibly can. At the same time, it's not just going to be vehicle to, to infrastructure, it's also going to be vehicle to vehicle. That's going to be another way that autonomous vehicles are going to achieve the safety that they're uh, going to need to be implemented uh, you know, in a wide sense. Safety is the key feature taken into account in any form of passenger transportation. Autonomous driving vehicles provide more than just a form of transportation. With the introduction of these self-driving cars on the road, plenty of opportunity opens up for mobility and waste reduction. This is also a, a becoming a more and more important trend. I think this is something that people are going to want. It's going to help give mobility to uh, people who didn't have it before. You know, people who are not able to drive or don't have access to uh, driver training, things like that people who no longer can drive. Um, so I think this is really going to be a key thing. And it's also, there's going to be a big safety push that pushes for autonomous vehicles. But again, there's some challenges that come with it. AVs are going to need a lot more technology, but it all still has to fit into that same package or even a smaller one if we want to try and optimize fuel use. So you're putting more and more sensors and, and more wiring into the same vehicle, which makes it harder to package things. So we see an integrated wire harness design platform as critical to trying to make all this stuff work. If you can produce a wire harness directly from your 3D assembly, then that makes it much easier to get everything packaged in there and get it so that it all works correctly and doesn't weigh too much. The other thing with AVs is that it really opens up a lot of possibilities for uh, things like interior and suspension and steering designs. If you think about it, in an autonomous vehicle, you don't need a, a standard uh, cockpit with a steering wheel and shifter and all those things. You can really start with kind of a clean sheet of paper, but you still have to make it accessible and you have to think about safety. And the thing about clean sheet of paper designs, they're great, but they're unproven and untested. The you know, automakers have been making kind of traditional 
human-driven automobiles for over 100 years, they kind of know what they're doing. But if you're going to uh, start with a clean sheet of paper, then you really need to be able to uh, find any kind of problems early on. So what you really need to do is validate things up front. Because if you can find things earlier in the design cycle, that's a whole lot better than finding them late. Because the later you find a problem in your design and manufacturing cycle, the more money it costs you and the more time it costs you to get that problem fixed. If you're already cutting metal and making parts, making a major design change is a huge, huge problem because it has to shut down production and, it, and it's tremendous cost involved. But if you can find it early on when uh, you're still in the CAD stage, it's an easy fix and it's fast. You can ask 10 different experts and get 10 different opinions. Uh, someone like Elon Musk will tell you it's coming very soon. In fact, they say they have autopilot in, in Tesla vehicles right now. It's not really autopilot, it's more marketing, but it is a very robust driver assistance system. And those kind of things are becoming more and more common. I mentioned Cadillac has Super Cruise, Ford has Copilot 360. And, and right now, there are different levels of autonomous driving, one through five. And I think like level one is, is cruise control, you know, which we've had for many decades. And level five is fully autonomous, that requires absolutely no interaction from the driver at all. We are seeing that in very limited areas, like you'll see shuttles on college campuses and things like that that run only one specific route and they don't have to deal with too many challenges or unexpected things. When we will see that on public roads is a really, really good question. Like I said, experts vary greatly on this. It's a really, really tough engineering challenge because not only are you uh, expecting the car to deal with traffic and things like that, but then you have to take into consideration weather conditions, right? Most autonomous systems that are out there right now use lane-keeping cameras and sensors to determine where they are in the lane. Well, if the whole road is covered in snow, as, as we are familiar with up here in the, uh, the northeastern part of the country, and the camera can't see the lines, how does it know where the road is? Does the AI know enough to, in snowy conditions, know that it needs to start braking earlier than it normally would? You know, there's a lot of things that human drivers do that we do unconsciously, just based on our experience, and we don't even think about it. And those are the kind of things that are, are tough for computers to learn. There's a ton of testing going on. As we all know, computers become more and more powerful every year. So will they get there? I'd say yes, probably. But I think my personal opinion is that it's still a couple decades away. Just even, you know, thinking about the safety factor and, you know, the trust factor, right? I mean, I don't know if I could get in a car that didn't have a human in it right now. You know, it's a behavioral type of issue. And a lot of people feel that way, and, and, and it's completely understandable. And there have been some fatalities. Um, I think there was one just a couple of weeks ago where a Tesla that was running on uh, autopilot hit a, a state trooper. I think it was in New Hampshire or something. I can't remember exactly where, but you know there have been accidents. There was a, a Google car out in uh, Arizona a couple of years ago that hit a, a pedestrian. I think, the, you know, I think it was a child, actually. It was terrible. They ran out in front of the car, and the car, you know, a human driver might have seen the, the kid on the side of the road and known to slow down, but the car didn't see, you know, it just thought it was an object on the side of the road, so when the kid went into the road, there was no time for it to react. So, you know, tragic things like that are, are 
what's going to kind of hold things up, I think, with, yeah. with autonomous for the time being until they really get all that uh, sorted out. Because you're right, unless people really fully trust this, it's not going to happen because, you know, people aren't going to be willing to get in those vehicles. It'll be interesting to see when it when it really comes to our world as we know it. The other thing with autonomous vehicles that we're seeing is that it's going to be able to increase vehicle utilization. And the numbers I'm seeing right now are with a standard vehicle as we own them right now, vehicle utilization is around 5%, which seems really low. But if you think about it, most of the time, your personal car is sitting in your driveway or it's sitting in a parking lot or in a a structure or garage or something. You're not actually driving it. With an autonomous vehicle that doesn't need a driver, they're speculating that the uh, vehicle utilization is going to go up to around 70%. So that means uh, that vehicle is going to have to be much more robust and durable. And that means you're going to have to do a lot more of that kind of testing up front, like I mentioned a second ago. And that comes into things again with the integrated CAE, where you need to be able to do things like multi-physics and 1D and meshing, structural and all kinds of you know composites analysis, things like that. But it also is an area where uh, virtual design reviews can really be helpful. And this is, again, taking advantage of uh, augmented reality and virtual reality technology, where you can get a whole team together. And as we see more and more companies are becoming uh, distributed worldwide, so you can't really necessarily bring everybody together into a room like you used to be able to do to do a design review. But if everybody can access the same information in a, in a virtual reality environment, wherever they are in the world, they can actually um, get together and, uh, and do a design review and look for those kind of problems, look for uh, things that might cause durability concerns and do that all in a virtual environment. So when you were talking about the utilization being 5% of our current cars today, do you mean utilization as far as like utilizing the car in general, or do you mean utilizing all of the features that are currently available in today's cars? Utilizing the car. If you think about it, most of the time, your personal vehicle is, is sitting there waiting for you to drive it. So only about 5% of the time the car is actually being driven, actually being used. That's amazing (laughs) when you really think about it. Yeah, if you think about it, it's true, though. I mean, you know, most of the time it's just kind of sitting there waiting for you to use it. So that's going to be one of the big advantages of autonomous is that we're going to be able to take much more advantage of these of these vehicles because they're not going to need a driver. Tom's mentioned quite a few benefits of autonomous driving vehicles, and aside from the obvious safety and trust factors, connectivity and the incorporation of modern features is also playing a part in design. Another thing that comes into play with connectivity is uh, things like AI interfaces, so like an Alexa-type thing. As cars become more complex and we pack more technology into them, you're going to need a a simpler way of interacting with the car, and and AI is going to achieve that for you. And of course, you're going to be able to get things like over-the-air updates, which people are used to having now for things like smartphones and computers. You're going to be able to do that with a car as well. And the last trend we're really seeing is lightweighting. It's a challenge because I just talked about a whole bunch of new technology that's been put into into cars. And as you do that, more content, more technology, more wiring, they get heavier. The problem with that is that reducing weight is one of the most important ways to improve fuel consumption. And, And that is true for electric vehicles, internal combustion vehicles, hybrids, or anything else. If you can make it lighter, it needs less fuel. 
The other thing is with weight, as you add more content to a vehicle and the chassis becomes heavier, that requires heavier duty suspension components, heavier duty uh, wheels and tires and all those things. And that just increases the whole weight of the, of the vehicle exponentially. So we're already seeing some movement in this area. And matter of fact, from uh, 2011 to 2017, the market for lightweight materials in the automotive sector went from about 108 billion to 153 billion. And that was as of two years ago. So that's taking off from there. The biggest thing is connected cars are going to use the Internet of Things to talk to infrastructure and each other, like I mentioned earlier. And then again, like autonomous, like EVs, that's going to need more embedded electronics and software and those same packaging challenges that come with it. Not only does that you know, single source of, of data for your mechanical and electrical help you with uh, that you know, no need to translate things, but you can also re respond a lot more quickly to things like design changes. The other thing that comes with connectivity is just complexity. And that means uh, things like uh, new materials and more electronics and more features. You know, if you look at a car from 10 years ago compared to a car of today, the features that have that come with them these days have tremendously increased. You know, things like infotainment, heating controls, and, and thing, you know, automatic climate control, and satellite navigation, all these things that used to be, well, they, they weren't in cars 20 years ago. 10 years ago, they were only in very high-end expensive cars, and now they're they're uh, trickling down to even, you know, basic economy cars and things like that. So as you add more of that stuff to, to a car, what you really need is a, is a flexible design approach. You need to be able to use the best tools for the job, regardless of where the data came from. You need things like design automation tools. And as there's more pressure on uh, time to market, you need to be able to uh, intelligently reuse some existing designs that are already proven. And you need to manage the whole thing using a systems uh, approach. So something like uh, you know, model-based systems engineering, which is an approach that originated in the uh, aviation industry and has become very prevalent in the automotive industry. If you think about trying to uh, design a car, it's a tremendously complex thing. And you're bringing a lot of people in, huge teams and huge amounts of data. Model-based systems engineering allows you to start off with the, the requirements that are going to drive that design. And you can trace those through the whole design process, validate them, and you can divide all those complex tasks into more manageable uh, subsystems and you can still have full communication across the different subsystems and the domains and through the value chain. So if you're dealing with suppliers uh, who are designing components and you're trying to integrate them into your larger assembly, then you're gonna be able to communicate with them and ensure that the requirements are, are being met throughout the entire design process. I can't remember all the exact characteristics of each level. I think we're at three, which is things like adaptive cruise control, you know, automated lane keeping, things like that. So, you know, with adaptive cruise, you can set a speed, but then if you come up behind a, a slower vehicle, it automatically slows down and things like that. And those kind of technologies have been around for quite a while now, a good 10 years at least. Level five is, is a big jump. If you want to find out more about this topic of how Siemens is working on autonomous driving vehicles, check out the Future Car Podcast series on your favorite podcast app. And so I guess the last trend that you had mentioned was lightweighting. Um, and I know that you mentioned, you know, different types of materials and lightweight materials. Can you talk a little bit to the audience about some of the trends and themes that you're seeing in lightweighting? 
the challenge we're running into is as we pack more and more technology into these vehicles is trying to make them as light as possible because it is so important that, that they have less mass in order to meet these uh, energy consumption requirements, be that fuel or electricity or whatever else. And it's, it's a trade-off. We talk about mass versus cost, but there's kind of an old saying in, in the automotive industry, you can have something lightweight, you can have something cheap, or you can have something durable, pick two. So you could always have a very lightweight, robust part, but it would be very expensive. You know, on the other hand, you could have something that's very uh, strong and very cheap, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to have a lot of mass. So we're really running into a situation where we need to have all three. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to compete in this, in this market. In the past, part designs were constrained by things like manufacturing techniques, what types of material were available, and even things like uh, aesthetics, looks. But what we're finding now is we need to uh, look at designs that are kind of inspired by nature and really optimized for their environment. If you think about a natural thing, like if you compare something like a, uh, an island to an oil platform, an oil platform is more or less a man-made island, right? Then it has straight sides and, and straight lines everywhere. But if you leave it for a thousand years without any maintenance, it's not going to hold up to that environment. Whereas an island that has more natural shapes, you know, curves and things like that has been optimized over millions of years to really be optimized to its environment and really be able to uh, hold up to all the, uh, the kind of environmental things that happen to it. So that takes us to uh, generative engineering, which is really becoming a more and more important area in product design, not just in automotive. And what it does is it allows you to take a set of parameters and constraints and then automatically generate a design that's based on that. And it ends up looking more organic because it, it really doesn't take into consideration all the old constraints that we used to have to deal with for, uh, you know, I need to be able to make this part on an injection molder or, you know, things like that. It'll give you the, the truly optimized design. And what you need to be able to do that is kind of combine some of the technologies that have been out there for a while. Things like topology optimization, feature parameter optimization, and then the ability to actually work with that optimized data. Because when you use these types of tools, you get something that's called facet data. And it's uh, data that's difficult to work with with a CAD system. But uh, some of the newer uh, technology that's out there does allow you to do that. And what we've seen is that some of these techniques can reduce design time for, by about 75% compared to the older manual ways of doing it. In fact, uh, EDAG is one of our customers. They were able to find 49 feasible designs after only 250 evaluations of a, a body and white part that they were working on. And of course, in order to make some of these designs, um, you need to use additive manufacturing because that's the only way to do it. Another area um, that we're seeing is very important for, uh, for lightweighting is materials. But some, the thing with some of these materials, some things like composites, carbon fiber, things like that, is that they, uh, they have different design challenges from traditional materials like, say, metals or plastics. So what you really need from them is a, is a specialized uh, design package that allows you to really, that's optimized to work with those types of materials. And it needs to link to things like analysis and design and manufacturing. It needs to be able to do it all in one environment. And if you have that, you can reduce your design time and you can uh, reduce manufacturing scrap as well. Nissan uses a uh, software like this, one of our customers. And using this type of technology, they were able to reduce the mass of a, uh, a deck lid assembly on one of their cars by about 40%. 
Lightweighting also comes into consideration, especially in the context of manufacturing and the assembly line. To assemble parts together, at times, new methods, resources, and tools need to be purchased and implemented by companies. Now, the other thing with these new materials and these new design processes is you're going to need uh, new tools and new methods for things like joining parts together, assembling them, and manufacturing. Some of the challenges that we run into with that are quality issues that are caused by things like manufacturing variation. And this is where additive manufacturing really comes in. This is it's going to be a critical tool for uh, creating some of these lightweight designs in the future. And according to a study um, that we looked at, 89% of the top performing companies are looking at uh, new design methods so that they can take advantage of additive manufacturing. So it's a very important technology, but it's difficult to scale. It's been used in prototyping for many years. When I was at Ford in the mid-90s, we were using stereolithography to create prototypes of some of our CAD parts. But it took a long time to make them. They were very brittle, and we didn't have any ability to kind of scale that up to full production. But now we're starting to see more tools that are going to allow you to do that by um, doing things like change management, requirements tracking, quality checks, and, uh, and being able to do it all in one platform so you don't need to translate from one software package to another, which is one of the big reasons one of our customers, Toolcraft, actually adopted uh, our software as their design solution because they do so much additive manufacturing. It allows them to do all of that in one package. Now, of course, some of the other things that I mentioned, like uh, assembly and joining and things like that, you need to be able to do things like manage your fasteners. You need to be able to simulate your manufacturing and assembly processes because that allows you to find those causes of variation. And then you can predict them and you can find those issues early. Remember I mentioned earlier about how much better it is to find problems early in the uh, design process. If you have an integrated uh, computer-aided manufacturing platform, then you can create uh, CNC programs, computer numerical control, for driving uh, machines. You can also create inspection paths and shop documentation and molds and dies. All these things, if you can do that with a single file in the whole design and validation and manufacturing process, it really helps you take advantage of the digital twin. Don't have to be moving between different platforms. It saves training costs because everything uses the same user interface. It really is a is a, the best way to go for uh, bringing all of that stuff together. So I know that a lot of software companies now are moving to the cloud. Are you seeing people in the automotive industry doing this? Slowly. I think we're going to see it mostly uh, at the supplier level at first. I think large automotive companies tend to be pretty cautious and they like to uh, own their own data. And I think that's been a challenge for uh, some of the large CAD vendors in this space that are moving toward a uh, exclusively cloud-based data management system. And they're facing some reluctance from their customers in that, but, but it is absolutely you know, it's going to become more and more important. But what we see is, uh, the way we see it is that the customer should be able to make that choice. We want to be able to provide that that option to them and give them a very robust cloud-based solution, but we don't want to tie them into that. If they, if they prefer to work a different way, then we want to give them the ability to work that way as well. If they want to use a uh, an on-site data management system, on-site licensing, any of those things, then, then we want to give them that flexibility. We're really dedicated to providing the tools that they need to be successful and not trying to dictate to them how they should be doing their business. 
One other question. I know that Siemens has gone to a continuous release strategy. So I believe every six months or so, a new release of certain products are being, you know, kind of released to the market. Can you talk a bit about the benefits of the continuous release strategy and, you know, how customers are adopting this? Well, if you think about most of the software you use these days, is updated continuously, right? If you use a Windows computer uh, every so often when you shut it off, you're gonna, it's gonna tell you that it needs to do an update. Your phone is gonna download an automatic update every so often, things like that. That's kind of the way the whole software industry is going. And there's a lot of reasons for that, but the, the best thing about it is that it enables you to stay current all the time. You're always having the latest uh, version of the software. You're always having the latest security, which is becoming more and more important. So you're, you're gonna always have the, the newest features. Everybody's working from the same version of the software, makes it easier to support. Even as a, as a vendor offering support to a customer, you know, we would know that you're on the, the latest version and not on one that's five years old. One of the things that we run into that's kind of interesting with our customers is that some of them are still on older versions of our software. They will complain to us sometimes about functionality that they they are lacking. And if they had updated to a newer version of, of our software, they would have that functionality, but they just don't know. By moving to a continuous release, then we can uh, help them to succeed by always making sure they have the latest functionality. Thanks to Tom Spangler for joining this discussion on the Automotive Deep Dive, and thank you for joining us today on this episode of Next Generation Design Podcast. I'm Jennifer Piper. Next month, we'll take a look at generative design and integrated validation. Siemens Digital Industries software is driving transformation to enable a digital enterprise where engineering, manufacturing, and electronics design meet tomorrow. Our Accelerator portfolio helps companies of all sizes create and leverage digital twins, which provide organizations with new insights, opportunities, and levels of automation to drive innovation. For more information on Siemens Digital Industries software products and services, visit www.sw.siemens.com or you can follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Siemens Digital Industries Software, where today meets tomorrow.